Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Challoner, and you join us on a cool and rather cloudy day here in the capital. You can certainly tell that it's autumn now, as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner, your host today, and I'm delighted to be joined on the programme first and foremost this morning by Carol Atkins. Carol is the Director of Berkshire Physiotherapy a private physiotherapy practice specialising in back and neck pain, neurology and post-COVID-19 rehabilitation. Um, Carol, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves. Um, Normally, of course, we would dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate that we start there. Um, I'm sure you'll agree it has proven to be one of the most significant challenges of our time for leaders in all walks of life. But how has it affected you and your operations? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. Um, Obviously, the moment we went into lockdown, we went from doing probably about 300 treatments a week to nothing. So that was a real challenge for us. Um, And how to manage patient expectations and how we were going to look after them. Uh, was interesting. We had to cancel appointments, but we very soon uh, set up a telephone line and then from that started doing some telehealth uh, so that we could do Zoom sessions or Skype sessions with patients and discuss their problems. Um, We didn't have a brilliant take-up for that because obviously part of our um, uh, clinic really means that we can see people face-to-face for a, for a good session and a length of time. So we see our patients for about 30 to 45 minutes, and they were missing that nice personal interaction. So we started to see what we call red flag patients, which means patients with extreme problems that can't be resolved um, by just seeing a GP. Maybe they'd need to go to A&E. So we, we could at least take patients out of the NHS system help them get on with dealing with the COVID problems and we could look after our patients in that way and we've slowly grown from there again. Certainly good to hear that essentially the business is back on the up now work, Carol, for sure. Um, But over this um, sort of last few months, um, is there anything you would say that you've learned perhaps from this experience of managing a crisis, if we call it that? Yeah, I mean, we took time out because we we had the time, like everybody else did, to have a really good look at our business um, and to see what we needed to change for the future. We we knew there would be a future for the business. Um, And I think, again, with the uh, crisis in the NHS, we knew there'd be even more people seeking treatment for us. So it was a great time to take stock. We changed our software in that time. Um, We moved to broadband fiber. We did a lot of planning for the future and, of course, really assessed the clinic to make sure we were incredibly safe for patients to return. So a really good learning process for us. Um, And for physios, too, there were lots of podcasts and training videos that we could look at online so we could get our clinical skills up to date as well. That's going to be one thing that's going to be important long term, isn't it? After a lockdown period, just sort of shaking off the cobwebs, as it were, and sort of making sure skills are up to uh, to date, especially when it comes to sort of helping out with post-COVID-19 rehabilitation, as you have been doing. And it also goes to show as well that for sort of leaders within your sector, there are a great deal of uh, resources out there and there's still a lot of learning to do because leadership fundamentally is a constant learning process, isn't it? We're never a finished article, even when we are, say, running a business. 
That's so true. And, uh, you know, in our profession, we're continually learning techniques are changing and our attitude towards physio has changed. I mean, I've been a physio for longer than I care to tell you, and things have changed rapidly in that time. What was really helpful for us was that um, some really good physios set up a uh, Facebook site where we could exchange information exchange uh, information on a training and then there were some podcasts as well from that so we've I think we've got better in communicating with each other which is really important too and hearing other people's aspects and how they were dealing with the challenge was really useful and you say Carol you've been active within the industry for a very long time there but if we just sort of <laughs> backtrack ever so slightly what yes. was it that really inspired you to sort of go in alone and head up your own business um, well, I'd always wanted to be a physiotherapist, so I had no, no other ideas for any other profession. But I think what made um, us think about moving into a private practice was just the ability to have more time with patients um, and to be a little bit different, I think, in our approach. So we are very hands-on and very exercise-based. So at our clinic, we have a gym. Uh, patients can come and use that. We also have a rehabilitationist. So just talking about the post-COVID um, rehab, we're really well set up for that um, already because we're already doing doing the rehab. So, um, But, yeah, what made me think about it? I just think we wanted to be different. I'd had a really good uh, background in the NHS, thoroughly enjoyed it, and then worked in Australia for a while and then just wanted to come and do my own thing. And fortunately, it's been really successful. And what would you say has been the steepest sort of learning curve as you've been running your own business? Would you say that it's been the recent pandemic situation or was it maybe something a little bit different? No, I think it's the recent pandemic. We've, we've in our business, we, the clinic's been open 35 years now and we've seen a year on year growth. Uh, we've never had a drop off. And so obviously this is the first time that that's happened. So to try and keep everything going um, as it was, was never going to be possible, but we wanted to keep it going. And so the challenge was, how do we quickly turn that around? What things do we put in place? How do we keep staff enthused during this time? But I think we like a challenge and we rise to it. And physios are really good at assessing that. That's what our job is. You know, we assess patients, we assess the risk, we assess for health. And so we just had to use those school skills um, in a slightly different way. And there are a couple of important things to take away from that. Of course, you mentioned the importance in a crisis of keeping sort of members of staff enthused, but also given that your line of work is very much based around health, just how much do you prioritise mental health and well-being within your sort of leadership style? Yeah, I think that's something we've really had to consider and we've never done that before. Um, we've got a really lively, friendly team who all work extremely well together. Um, and I think this is the first time that we had to take time out and realize that changing people's way of work, and obviously for some people their income too, some of our staff are self-employed. So that was quite disastrous for them in the beginning. So in helping them sort of look for ways of funding, et cetera, helped a bit. But I think we need to work harder on the mental health issues in the future. Um, have you seen that during a time of adversity like this, the people around you really brought out the best in themselves? Because we have seen some incredible stories, haven't we, from the front line, particularly during this time? 
Yeah, I have. And I've seen staff pick up skills that they never had before. So the telehealth, one of our physios, really ran with that, was absolutely superb and related so well to people. Um, but yeah, the, the whole team has stepped up. Uh, they, they really, really have and been very willing to work in different ways to make it work. And uh, and that just gave us a good feeling because we felt right, well, we must be run, running the business well if people are prepared to put extra effort in. Uh, to keep it going. Mm, exactly. And um, albeit, of course, um, leaders have come under a lot of pressure to just keep staff enthused and motivated and also reassured during this time. Um, it has made everybody feel just that little bit more self-aware. Um, so when you are under a bit of pressure with people sort of looking to you for answers and you maybe need a little bit of sort of inspiration and direction for yourself at a time like this, where is it that you would tend to sort of look to to find that? Well, uh, my son's very useful. He's got a degree in business. Mm. <laughs> so I go and have a little chat with him. Um, and he's often got a different way of looking at things. But I mean, I think we've encouraged people to maybe step away from work for a little bit, go down the gym. We have a gym at the clinic staff can use, go for a walk. I think nature's a wonderful way to, to get outside. But also during this time, I did uh, a few training sessions with an Australian physio. He did a 30-day uh, training session. So every day there was something for us to uh, look at, focus on, uh, and work with. Um, and I found that really inspiring to help my staff, actually. So uh, yeah, John Davis, he was really helpful. It's so easy, isn't it, even at the best of times, to get sucked into that hectic world of running um, a business, let alone during a time such as this. So it can be so easy to forget that even as a business leader, sometimes you do have to just switch off once in a while, don't you? Yeah, I think so. So, I mean, we've encouraged staff to go and have a, um, you know, some time off, some days off, try and get away. It's really difficult at the moment because the clinic is extremely busy. Um, we've actually got a waiting list. So, you know, we're desperate for staff to be in. But I think we've really realized that to take a break away is so important. Life doesn't need to be that hectic. We don't have to. We are successful. We don't have to be super successful. Um and yeah, just encouraging staff to enjoy life. And it's been good, hasn't it, in this time mm. to be able to spend more time with family, I think. That's really important too. Mm. There you certainly know. has been a little bit of a silver lining in the dark and dense cloud of COVID-19, hasn't there? One of them has been, as you say, that time oh. we can spend with family, that period of self-reflection. But also we've seen a great deal of innovation during this time, haven't we? Businesses having to pivot and get creative to just keep things going. Yeah, that's very true. And I have to say my gardening's looking spectacular because of the amount of time <laughs> I've spent in it. <laughs> but yeah, pivot is the right word. You really do. And you've got to be pretty agile to do that. You absolutely do. And um, thinking of sort of what you've picked up, not just during the pandemic, but also through all your years of uh, business, Carol, if um, you had to perhaps give some advice to some of the younger generations of listeners that might be listening to this and are considering going it alone, starting their own businesses, or maybe stepping into leadership roles in an established firm, what advice would you have to give them to really get them on the road to success? Gosh, that's a, that's a interesting question. Uh, I think... Don't be frightened of being different. Don't be frightened of stepping out. And try to close your ears to the naysayers and the people who are negative. 
Uh, I remember when we set up our business, some people in the NHS were, oh, it will never work. People won't want to pay for private physio. And, and that turned out to be a nonsense. So, you know, hold on to your ideas. Be prepared to run with them. And, and just don't listen too much to the negative vibes that you will hear. I think that's incredibly important. Um, one thing um, that I am really impressed in terms of uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson, I know he's come under a lot of criticism during uh, this period of time, but he has always had that sort of very much can-do positive attitude, doomed to the naysayers sort of thing. So yes, I do really um, feel that that's important, Carol, to get that out there. And I really do certainly get behind that for sure. Um, yeah. I am conscious that we are short of time on the programme this morning, but just before we do wrap things up, I really do do, uh, wish to talk about the uh, the future as well because over the course of the uh, the next 12 months we know we're going to have to continue to adjust to what is being billed as the new normal and um, for the benefit of those tuning into this we are recording on the 25th of September 2020 so just three days ago the Prime Minister did announce sweeping new COVID-19 restrictions and a real sign there that we are still going to be within this uh, for the uh, the long haul for sure um, so over the next year, Carol, in light of that, um, what is it that you are hoping to really achieve at Berkshire Physiotherapy and where do you see yourselves being this time next year? Um, again, a really good question. I would say that we're able to see uh, 75% of our patient demand at the moment because of the different way that we've got to work. And it is important we continue with that different way of working. I mean, we've really got to think of safety of our patients. And we wear PPE when we're working. So I actually see some growth in the clinic because we're going to need to take on some more physiotherapists to deal with the demand. Um, so that's a really good thing. And as I said, in our lockdown, we had a really good look at our building and how we could utilize the space better. So for us, I hope a slow and steady growth um, but with a lot of safety in mind. But I can see a, um, a real future, again, for the COVID rehab. You know, it's hitting a lot of people really hard. Um, and getting back to fitness is going to be a challenge, and I hope we can take a place in that. Mm, certainly seems to be plenty um, on the plate over the year, the next few months, because people are certainly going to need to take advantage of those services for sure, Carol. And I do yeah. wish you all of the, uh, the luck in the world in making all of that possible. In fact, just given how enlightening it's been having you joining us on the programme today, I would really welcome the opportunity to have you back on the show with us at some point in this next year, just to see how things are coming along in a few months time. Thank you. I'd really be happy to do that and hopefully have a positive story to tell you. Let's certainly hope so. Thank you ever so much for your time today, Carol. It's been a real pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak again, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on as well. Thank you. You too. I'd also reiterate that message to all of our listeners today. Do please continue to be considerate of others and look after yourselves during this time because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. Um, coming up next on the programme today, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, having served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 20 28 years and held a number of senior roles in the cabinet of former Prime Minister Tony Blair. He was elevated to the Upper House of Parliament back in August 2015. I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. And that is, of course, coming up next.
Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and, uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain, 
and of course um, ensuring because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well the more we are online the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become and that's something to think about as well how important is strong leadership at the moment well i actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's uh, severe illness but all the way through the public and private sector people have to use the jargon stepped up and they've shown uh, local regional national level the kind of leadership that britain historically was very good at regrettably we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons uh, but maybe we will in future so i think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods uh, including for instance shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system um, the food chain and the like uh, but also i think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly 
different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated 
their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. Because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized uh, 
technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. 
and therefore we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. 
and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially 
in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, the thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.